Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's event, the road to COP26. What is the role of biofuels? My name is Dave Keating. I'm a journalist based in Brussels, and I'm coming at you from the heart of the EU quarter at your Actives Studios.、Uh, now we're coming to you with this event at a time that's going to be really crucial. For global climate policy, in a month and a half, we'll be having the long-awaited COP26 summit, the 26th Conference of the Parties meeting for the UN climate process. The reason that this installment is so particularly long-awaited is because it was delayed from last year due to the COVID pandemic. So, really, we've got two years worth of work to do at this upcoming summit, and there will be a lot of issues to talk about at COP26. But one of the main ones will be how to tackle the thorny issue of global transport emissions. According to the International Energy Agency, transport accounts for a quarter of all direct CO2 emissions from fuel combustion worldwide. Road vehicles are the source of nearly three quarters of that amount. Now, biofuels hold a lot of promise to solve this conundrum because they are a fuel, but they're not from fossils. There have been a lot of lessons learned about biofuels over the past years, and one of the main places to learn those lessons is Brazil, the second largest producer of biofuels in the world, second only to the United States. Brazil has the largest fleet of flex fuel vehicles in the world, and for over 50 years now, cars in Brazil have been powered by sustainable biofuels. Now the UK, which currently holds the rotating presidency for COP26, has set clean transport and electric vehicles as one of the priorities for this summit. The UK is investing in the electrification of its fleet and is moving from the E5 to the E10 standard, which has 10% bioethanol blend in petrol. So today we're going to talk about how biofuels will factor in to this year's climate summit. We'll talk about issues like land use and sustainability issues, debates around food security, second generation and advanced biofuels, as well as voluntary certification and traceability within supply chains. We'll also talk about the use of biofuels in sectors that are harder to electrify, such as shipping and aviation. Now, before I introduce our panelists, a couple housekeeping notes. You guys will be able to put your questions to the panelists using Vimeo.、Uh, you can do that using the chat feature. So that's we've changed the the way we do questions. It's a little different than you might have done your active events before. But you want to ask your questions in the chat section. I'll be reading out those questions to the panelists. It would be great if in your question you can identify who you are, what your organization is, and if applicable, which specific panelist. You'd like to put your questions to. So let me go ahead and introduce those panelists to you now. We have us、uh, here with us today, Plinio Nastari, President and CEO of DataGrow and President of the Brazilian Institute of Bioenergy and Bioeconomy. We have Emily Reis from Unica, which is the Brazilian Sugarcane Industry Association. We have Andre Valente, Manager for Sustainability at the Brazilian energy company Ryzen. And James Primrose, Vice President、uh, for Strategy at Gas and Low Carbon Energy at the British energy company BP. Thank you all for joining us today, Emily. I'd like to start with a question for you. As we're looking ahead to COP26, how do you think that that summit is going to take into account the role of biofuels worldwide? What's going to be the place of biofuels at this summit? 
Thanks, Dave, and uh, a big thank you to your active uh, for convening uh, this event today. I mean, I must say it's a pleasure to be amongst uh, such esteemed uh, panelists, and I'm really looking forward to learning a lot also out of today's discussion. So um, the, the British presidency of, of COP26 has um, set out its goals for Glasgow. Um, it set out to secure uh, this global net zero commitment by 2050. And essentially that means that countries are going to have to come forward with their ambitious 2030 emissions reduction targets. So when we look at decarbonizing transport with that 2030 target in mind, um, one of the big hopes for, 20, for COP26 is uh, basically to convince international partners to make the move immediately uh, towards uh, sustainable solutions. And of course, low carbon fuels, uh, such as sugarcane ethanol, uh, can save up to 90% of emissions in comparison to fossil fuels. And they're implementable today. So, I mean, really, there is no time to waste. Um, cars in most parts of the world support uh, a minimum of 20% biofuels blends, uh, again, with immediate effect. So um, what we have seen, and you mentioned it in, in the introduction, is that Brazilian sugarcane ethanol has really proven unambiguously um, that the massive contribution that certain biofuels uh, can make in the fight against climate change. And since 2003 and up to July of this year, Thanks to that flex fuel um, uh, technology uh, that you mentioned, Brazil has saved over 560 million tonnes of CO2 from being emitted into the atmosphere. And just by way of comparison, that's at least five times the performance of the EU over the same period. So the, the International Energy Agency recently uh, released a report on energy technology perspectives, and it shows that electrification alone cannot lead to climate neutrality, which is one of the goals for COP26, and that options such as renewable biofuels have to be part of the mix. Now, please don't get me wrong. Um, I'm not trying to discount EVs. The world needs to look at every solution that's out there when we're looking at decarbonizing transport. Um, in, in Brazil, for instance, most of the large automakers are already looking at a number of solutions that also include hybrid electric ethanol and hydrid, hydrogen ethanol solutions. Um, but if the goal is to have the world switch uh, entirely to electric vehicles, then surely countries are going to have to have clean energy matrices. Otherwise, you're simply dislocating your carbon emissions from transport to energy generation. Um, so there really is a, a question there. I mean, in Brazil, sugarcane, and I think this is uh, important to remind, it provides not only the ethanol, which is the renewable fuel uh, for internal combustion engine passenger cars, uh, using flex fuel, the share can reach up to 100% ethanol, so be fossil fuel free, but it also supplies the bioelectricity that will and can move EVs. So in fact, today, sugarcane supplies enough energy, um, that this bioelectricity to power a country the size of Argentina or Norway. So it's also part of, uh, let's say, uh, the, the energy matrix that will uh, move the e EVs as well. So, but there is, of course, a question of affordability that I'm sure we'll be raising today. Uh, additional COP objectives, if I may, um, are uh, to curtail deforestation as one of the contributors to GHG emissions, um, to look at protecting natural habitats and, and restoring ecosystems, and importantly, to 
mobilize finance and investment, right, to make that big leap towards uh, 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 decarbonized uh, economies. So I'm sure we'll touch upon those uh, goals as part of our discussion today. And uh, I'm really looking forward uh, to the debate. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Emily. So you mentioned some of the experiences with Brazil. Plinio, let's turn to you next because you're really an expert on this. Tell us about the experience with biofuels in Brazil, the lessons learned, what's gone great, what's gone not great. Uh, and can Brazil's experience be scaled up to global level? Thank you very much, uh, Dave. Uh, I would like to uh, compliment all panelists and uh, thank for the invitation. Well, first of all, uh, the relevance of Brazil's experience is that uh, Brazil is the third largest consumer of fuels in transport in the world. And um, uh, while being the third, uh, ethanol, uh, bioethanol bio has been able to substitute 48% of gasoline consumption. Um, this is data from 2019 and 2020. So by far, Brazil is the uh, largest country in terms of um, ethanol use and also biodiesel use in proportionate terms, um, even though it's the second uh, um, largest producer in volume. Um, and, um, and the potential is not only uh, where it lays. Um, the um, residues from the industrialization of sugarcane um, uh, if uh, they are uh, used in biodigestion, which is a, a line of diversification, which is uh, just picking up right now, besides bioelectricity, biodigestion would allow uh, production of 56 million cubic meters per day of biogas and biomethane. This is equivalent to 16.3% of electric electricity consumption in Brazil, or 30% of diesel consumption in Brazil, or 50% of natural gas, uh, fossil natural gas consumption in Brazil. So it's an enormous amount of energy, basically because one ton of sugar cane is equivalent to 1.2 barrels of oil. And all this is being produced in a very sustainable way. In uh, the key to this whole process is certification um, and uh, the certification uh, which is being achieved through very stringent uh, strong regulation uh, and in brazil we have implemented henova bio uh, allows to guarantee that all this production is uh, done in a sustainable way the advantages of ethanol uh, uh, are various and um, we, we see uh, a number of technologies uh, in transport competing at the moment. And as Emily said, we are going to have a diversity of solutions. Uh, but the, um, the tendency of electrification should not be mistaken by the electric vehicle alone. You can have electrification using liquid fuels, in particular, the clean liquid fuels like biofuels and biogas and biomethane included. And ethanol in particular is a drop-in solution um, since it does not require the building up of a new infrastructure for distribution. It uses the current uh, infrastructure for liquid fuels. It enables immediate implementation and results. And 
very interestingly, it's replicable. There's no technical barrier for its implementation. It's scalable. It can start small and grow over time, uh, including uh, using available feedstocks and, and residues, uh, including cellulosic uh, residues for conversion into ethanol. Uh, it has very effective and proven um, environmental and health benefits. Uh, ethanol does not produce fine particular matter. It substitutes carcinogenic aromatics. Um, very important, it's affordable in price to consumers. So it's a technology which uh, is able to be uh, implemented and paid for by societies around the world uh, while creating jobs as well. And uh, it allows automakers to meet the most restrictive emission limits. It's fine to see uh, many countries and companies uh, looking at reducing uh, emissions from uh, current uh, transport from the range of 122 to 140 grams of CO2 equivalent per kilometer and reduce it to 92 using uh, electrification with batteries. It's a great contribution. But using ethanol, flex engines in Brazil already enable emissions of 46 grams per kilometer. And hybrids, which are electric vehicles using ethanol, currently in Brazil, are emitting 29. And they are going towards uh, zero emissions. Why? Because from the production of more bioelectricity, from the production of biogas and biomethane, um, the tendency is for substitution of diesel, which is still used in uh, planting, harvesting, and transport of cane, um, to be substituted by biomethane, which comes from cane uh, uh, itself. And, um, and in, this, in these numbers, we are not taking into account the carbon which is being stored in the soil from microbiological uh, activity, uh, which is eating up all these uh, residues from the industrialization of cane and fixed carbon in the soil, working as a carbon sink. When these uh, measures are taken into account, we could be very easily be saving more than 100% of the carbon emissions uh, which are currently being emitted by uh, gasoline emissions. So this is very sustainable. It's replicable. Uh, other countries are pursuing the same strategy um, because they have availability of feedstocks uh, to do that. And the fleets which are uh, in place today, as Emily said, allow for up to 20% blend. And some countries like India are on the verge of implementing flex fleets like Brazil does. In Brazil, 85% of the fleet is already flex and capable of using pure ethanol. And other countries are uh, seeking to follow the same route. Finally, uh, ethanol has a ethanol and biomethane has a great and large amount of hydrogen. And Nissan in 2016 declared in Yokohama, Japan, that by having a distribution system to distribute ethanol, Brazil 
was able to resolve the hurdle of the hydrogen distribution system because it has already almost 42 uh, fuel stations distributing ethanol, which is equivalent to distributing hydrogen. So as countries around the world are seeking to establish hydrogen coming into the area of hydrogen through biofuels on a sustainable way with certification to certify that this is being done on a sustainable way, biofuels can play this role. And this is what I think Brazil can bring to Glasgow, the experience of biofuels, which is replicable, scalable, but must be certified in a proper way. Thanks, Plinio. So you mentioned sustainability when it comes to sugarcane. So let's turn to our sustainability manager next, Andre. Um, tell us a little bit about how sustainability has evolved in Brazil, both with the situation on the ground and also with certification, which Plinio mentioned. Right. Okay. Hello, Dave. Hi, everyone. Pleasure to be here with, with, with you and this, this heavy group of panelists. Um, I, I would say that there's there's a lot to talk about when it comes to sustainable practices in, in, in Brazilian agribusiness and, and most people are not familiar with what actually happens down here. And I'll try I'll try not to repeat too much what Plinio already covered, but um, if you look back to what used to be common practices 30 to 40 years ago and, and comparing to what we got in place today, it's like looking at those pictures of our, of our, of our family, grandparents and having a hard time to imagine it was real. Uh, if you look at sugarcane and ethanol, the industry's growth um, did come with a with a price. Um, you can imagine large sugarcane field that had to be manually harvested as fast as possible under high temperatures. On top of that, to make the cutting process easier, the farmers would just burn the whole field to the ground to get rid of tops and leaves that were just uh, slowing them down. Uh, so, so very little enforcement, uh, challenging labor conditions intense uh, environmental impact from the burning surrounding communities having to treat the ashes uh, as a regular visitor in their houses but it was crystal clear decades ago that uh, when we were we were entitled to 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 call ethanol renewable but not necessarily sustainable back then and then if you if you fast forward to our current reality uh, labor intensive harvesting replaced by highly technological and mechanized processes, uh, pre-harvest burning designed previously to get rid of waste biomass are now replaced by burn-free harvesting that actually preserves the same waste biomass to become a feedstock for more, uh, for more energy production. Um, most of that was possible through public policies that held companies accountable for, for their social and environmental impacts. For instance, Brazil has a very strict legal environment when it comes to labor conditions, but companies did their, their part as well. Field burning was um, has been extinguished voluntarily by major players, even before the mandatory deadline, simply because it didn't make any more sense to do that. And and all of that becomes um, clear when you when you look at the, the credentials we've got today. Every, every market or, or company um, have their priority on, on sustainability requirements. Could be a minimum GAG reduction, land use change requirements, biodiversity conservation, 
um, soil management, social impact conditions, you, you name it. Uh, um, but the good news is that we meet them all. And, and to be honest, the, the, the stricter, the better to us because, uh, well, we, we supply to the EU, we supply to the US, to Japan, but we wouldn't access the EU without a recognized certificate. Uh, our product would not be competitive in California without a low carbon footprint. Uh, we wouldn't enter uh, Japanese market without satellite imagery confirming zero deforestation. So that's how committed we are in Brazil. And it's not a coincidence that Brazil has most of the bon sucro certified sugarcane um, in the world. And and just one more comment, and, and, and I'll stop here. Uh, Brazil is the fifth largest country in, and easily among the top 10 in energy demand as a whole, not only for transport sector. Uh, we're almost the size of Europe. Plus, we have a road-based logistics, so you can imagine the fuel demand. And our, our sugarcane in Brazil is responsible for 18% of the total energy matrix, not electricity matrix, energy as a whole. So one might think, well, if you cover your country with sugarcane, that's easy. But what people don't know is that Brazilian territory is only 1% sugarcane. We are this sugar, biofuel, and, and, and biomass world superpower with only 1% of our territory dedicated for that crop. And we haven't even topped the potential for that 1% yet. So um, most importantly, uh, it happens today, and that's the key message. Uh, uh, repeating on what Emily just said, uh, it happens today with the, with, with the highest sustainability standards. It's available in large scale for anyone to use. It's dropped in and we've already started the next transformation, which can dis we can uh, discuss further on. But I believe this gives uh, a, a broad view of the biofuel industry's impact and, and the importance of making sure it is properly placed in any decarbonization discussion. Thanks a lot, Andre. Let's pivot to the UK now, the holder of the, the COP26 presidency. James, um, how do you see biofuels fitting into the UK's energy mix? And I wonder how might biofuels fit into BP's net zero target uh, for 2050, which of course mirrors the UK's net zero target for 2050? Sure. Okay. Well, thank you very much, uh, Dave, and uh, hello to everybody who's on this uh, on this uh, webinar. Um, so, what I'll try and do is give you a you know the uh, perspective from from BP, so who's uh, an investor not just in in biofuels but broader across the, the low carbon the low carbon energy the energy mix. Um, so we we absolutely see biofuels as having a role to play in the decarbonisation of uh, transport transport fuels. Um, not just today, uh, but also in the in the long term. And I think uh, um, with um, uh, the biofuels uh, potential to uh, decarbonize uh, the hard to electrify parts of the tra transport sector. So I'm thinking here about aviation in particular, uh, but also um, uh, some elements of the heavy duty uh, uh, transport, road transport sector, and and possibly and possibly and possibly marine. Um, but what I would say is, um, and there is clearly going to be the 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 need and indeed opportunity for what we see today in terms of the the biofuel sector and the and the best performing parts of the biofuel sector, which we would uh, consider um, 
uh, Brazil as being one of the foremost proponents. There's going to be a need for that sector, an opportunity for it to evolve. And I think if we want to see the uh, advanced technologies that we're going to need in the longer term, post-2030, going out to 2050 to meet the, uh, the net zero uh, uh, ambitions, they have to be built on the foundations of what we see today in terms of the skill sets, the capabilities, the technologies, the assets, the 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 the, the, uh, the resource base that we that we see that we see today. Um, so we do see, um, and Emily's mentioned electrification, and we do see uh, for most markets, and I think the UK that is is uh, is one. When we do see electrification, do see EVs as being the um, the primary means to decarbonise um, the passenger car uh, fleet. And indeed, BP is investing in this, particularly in the UK, with uh, uh, with BP, BP Pulse and m more recently with our uh, 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 partnership with VW to install uh, fast, uh, fast, fast chargers. Um, but I think nonetheless, you know, even by 2030, still 90% of all miles, kilometers driven by cars, trucks, buses will be using liquid fuels. So again, this um, uh, this does really emphasise the need in the short term for uh, low carbon, uh, low carbon liquid solutions, where um, uh, biofuels have, a, in our view, have a very key role, role to play. And then, of course, there is the longer term um, uh, requirement uh, to pivot, if you will, uh, away from biogasoline solutions into biodistillate, so biodiesel and bio biojet solutions and again just looking at the aviation sector to meet the aviation goals by by 2050 we may be looking at a requirement of some 30 to 50 percent biojet blends into uh, into into aviation fuel and that is you know a a considerable amount of uh, of uh, of volume of material you know potentially equivalent to what we're seeing today in the uh, in the biofuel sector as a as a whole so Dave, you asked about what bp is is doing in this in this space and how this is influencing our, our strategy well i think um when we announced our new strategy back in uh, september last uh, uh last year i think we set out two uh relevant well that strategy, strategy consisted of two relevant metrics the first one was setting out the bioenergy target and we've set a bioenergy target of uh hundred thousand barrels a day of bioenergy by uh, by 2030 so that is a fourfold uh, increase of where BP is today um, and we also set out an ambition to be a leading marketer of biojet in our um, our aviation business and we set a, a, a target to capture 10% of the biojet uh, market uh, by, by, by 2030 and then of course there is our so-called AIMS3 um, um, ambition so our ambition to reduce the carbon intensity of our um, marketed products and again we see biofuels as being one of the uh, core um, levers to, to to achieve that going forward both in the short term but also in the in the uh, in the longer term so in terms of our biofuel uh, activities uh, so there's there is brazil and that's uh, i suppose our our key activity uh, to date, and there's our joint venture with uh, uh, Bungay, so BP Bungay, which is uh, one of the largest uh, sugarcane uh, ethanol operations in, in Brazil. So we have 11 mills, 
uh, and uh, we crush uh, around about 32 million tons of uh, sugarcane um, <clears throat> a year, producing some uh, 1.7 billion litres of low carbon ethanol, uh, 1.7 million tonnes of sugar, and we also export power, green power, into the grid in 1.7, around about 1.7 uh, uh, terawatts. Uh, uh, terawatts a, a, a year, and um, the, the other three speakers have spoken to uh, uh, Brazil's Brazilian um, sugarcane ethanol's sustainability and their carbon credentials. So I won't uh, won't repeat those, but I mean, suffice to say, we regard a Brazilian uh, sugarcane ethanol as a biofuel of today, delivering advanced advanced performance. Other activities that we are um, involved in um, is uh, biogas, uh, and we have a very large operation in, in the US uh, where we are the largest supplier of biogas to the transport sector in the US, targeting heavy duty, heavy duty vehicles. And we are um, uh, investing uh, again into that business in terms of uh, supporting the uh, supply offtakes with uh, equity production in biogas, and we're looking at uh, options uh, and looking supply uh, positions in biogas again targeting the uh, heavy duty vehicles both in the in the UK and in uh, and in uh, and in and in Europe and um, on renewable diesel and biojet uh, we are we co-process um, waste oils at a number of our refineries to make renewable diesel and and, and, and biojet and we uh, will expand that going forward you know, potentially including large-scale de dedicated uh, dedicated uh, 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 facilities, and then in the um, uh, in the uh, advanced biojet uh, uh, um, uh, sphere, if you will, uh, there is our partnership with Fulcrum in the U.S., uh, which is completing the construction of what will be the first commercial-scale uh, municipal solid waste. Uh, to biojet using uh, gasification Fisher Trotch in, in the uh, in the world, and we and we will uh, uh, once that is uh, commissioned, we will be uptaking some uh, 50 million gallons a year of biojet and, and moving that into our into our aviation 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 business. And we're looking at other options uh, elsewhere again in in Europe. Um, and the interesting um, uh, Piece there is some of the integration options we're seeing with with green with green hydrogen. I mean, some people see uh, e-fuels as being a, um, uh, a counterpoint to to advanced biofuels. Actually, we see quite some some certain fairly interesting integration and synergy op uh, uh, options with with uh, with advanced biofuels and and and, uh, and, and e-fuels. And then just a word on on biojet. I mean, we um, we were you know we were one of the first. Um, uh, um, marketers of, of, of biojet, and we're and we're one of the um, one particular uh, milestone. We were the first supplier of uh, biojet into a, an airport's uh, hydrant uh, system, so a jet uh, hydrant system in, in Oslo. And just more recently, uh, in fact, this week, we announced a, uh, a partnership with uh, BA to supply. Uh, uh, biojet SAF uh, to all the planes that flying from uh, um, uh, from Edinburgh and London into Glasgow for for COP for COP uh, uh, twenty six. So what I would um, point I 
the closing point I would make is that you know, going forward, we see the biofuel sector and the best performing parts of the biofuel sector having to go through two um, uh, key pivots, if you will. But firstly, a move from uh, what is today a biogasoline, bio, uh, bioethanol orientated uh, market into biodiesel and specifically into, into, into biojet, and then also a move into advanced uh, low carbon feedstocks, you know, both uh, reasons of sustainability, uh, but also the scale and to deliver the material scale that we need to, we need to achieve need to achieve if we're going to make a, uh, the, the, the impact that we that we need. But again, I would reinforce the point that this has to be, if we're going to do this effectively, this has to be based on the on the foundations of what we have today. Again, in terms of the skill sets, the capabilities, the resources, the assets, uh, and the, the business models and the value chains that we have we have uh, we have today. I, I think it's a mistake to to view uh, advanced biofuels are somehow being you know, a separate, a separate sector, a separate, a separate, uh, a separate business. If it is to be successful, it will need to be deeply integrated uh, with the uh, with the uh, with the business that we see today. And I think Brazil is a is a is a very good case in point. Uh, I mean, clearly there are a, a number of opportunities for Brazil to play its part in this big pivot, if you will. Uh, there are technologies that uh, allow the conversion of biojet into, uh, so bioethanol into 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 biojet. Um, um, we have the potential to use the other the waste feedstocks uh, uh, around around Brazilian uh, sugarcane operations to produce advanced 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 biofuels. Uh, and then, of course, there are all the there's the skill sets and the capabilities and the experience that Brazil has of delivering bioenergy at scale. And again, I think it's it's um, it's difficult to underestimate that um, that point because it is scale that we're going to need if this is going to make a material material impact. Thanks, James. Uh, so I want to dive right in and ask about the elephant in the room, which is the twin issues of the food for fuel debate and the deforestation debate. There will obviously be people at COP26 who are not big fans of biofuels uh, and who worry about the kind of side effects from indirect land use change uh, and other economic effects uh, that certainly here in Brussels have, big, have, have been a big concern. We know we've seen EU legislation around biofuels change uh, several times because of some of these concerns. So, Emily, um, let me put this, this question to you. Where are we right now with the food versus fuel debate and the deforestation debate? Thanks. Uh, great question, right? I mean, as you said, I don't think it should be the elephant in the room. Um, but uh, read, picking up the Financial Times yesterday, I, I couldn't help seeing that one of the articles was a, a diesel versus donuts dispute in the US. So perhaps it is a moment that we need to re-reflect on these issues. Um, in Brazil, uh, essentially, uh, um, there is not an ILUC issue. I mean, even the European Union does uh, very clearly um, accept that uh, sugarcane ethanol is a low ILUC risk biofuel, 
right? Um, we've had numerous reports, but one of the most recent ones from the Joint uh, uh, Research Centre from the European Commission uh, showed that uh, the potential for expansion of sugarcane into croplands was marginal. And this is really simple. As um, Andre uh, said, uh, one is that sugarcane takes place in a, a, a bit over 1% of the Brazilian territory, right? But its expansion occurs in degraded pastures, right? And, and when we think of pastures, these aren't um, uh, pretty grasslands as we'd find in, in, in Europe. They are unfortunately um, degraded pastures that are recuperated, which have whole new uh, reforestation efforts that are brought in uh, into play in parallel to bringing these lands into a productive use. Uh, we also know that sugarcane ethanol, um, Brazilian sugarcane ethanol, uh, respects every environmental criteria that is set out by the EU, which is why we welcome a certification process uh, that would allow us to um, um, uh, uh, not have, let's say, this cap on uh, feed and food-based biofuels um, that is currently in um, the, the Renewable Energy Directive. Uh, more importantly, I think that uh, what we're seeing here in, is unfortunate is a misunderstanding of um, land use change in Brazil, uh, particularly the fact that sugarcane um, is, 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 is produced uh, very far from the Amazon, 2,000 kilometers. It's more or less the, the distance of Paris to Moscow, um, with the rest that takes place in the northeast of Brazil. Um, essentially, also the producers have, as was mentioned already, under the Renova Bio program, um, in order to emit the carbon bonds, the CBOs, uh, producers have to respect a zero deforestation policy, which is audited independently. All of this essentially is why we um, um, have no issues, no qualms, I would say, with our sustainability references. We're, we're very um, proud of the sustainability references that we can provide. But again, it means that the, that the food versus fuel uh, debate is very antiquated in our case. If we look towards Europe, we can also see, I was just seeing the Eurostat uh, figures of today, which showed that the EU continues to be one of the major agricultural exporters of the world. And we see that also in Europe, the biofuel production of Europe doesn't seem to also have any um, uh, strong uh, impact on food markets. So I think that we need to look at uh, uh, each pathway uh, in its own right and for its own criteria, sustainability criteria, in order to make that assessment. But it's certainly an issue that we hope to see addressed um, as part of COP26. Again, I think it's important to remind that, that sugarcane is really um, energy. It's pure energy in all its forms. It produces sugar, it produces renewable energy uh, fuels, uh, this low-carbon fuel, ethanol. Um, it also produces uh, bioelectricity, biogas, and many other uh, products um, downstream that also provide into uh, the circular uh, economy, such as bioplastics, for instance, which we need now uh, to decarbonize our economies fully. So it's really that versatility that we need to assess uh, within this, uh, this framework. Uh, and I think that there are some debates that need to be put to rest, at least in the case of uh, sugarcane ethanol, which once again is a proven low ILOC risk biofuel. Andre, uh, 
Emily says that she'd like to see this issue tackled head on at COP26. Um, do you think, Andre, that there is a, obviously when you're talking about different types of crops, they're all gonna have different ILUC effects and different uh, potential for deforestation or food versus fuel. So what would you like to see at the COP26 debate? And is there a risk that all of the different types of fuels, and we know there have been especially concerns about palm oil, you could name specific crops. Is there a risk that everyone just see, lumps first-generation biofuels into one category and then the discussion becomes kind of polemic? And how, at COP26, do you think it can be encouraged to go, encouraged to go into the nuances of different types of biofuel? Right, good question. Um, I, I would say that uh, this is one of the key challenges for us to talk about biofuels properly because uh, the, the, the big problem rests when you put every solution on the same basket, when you try to find a silver bullet that will cover everyone's challenges, and, and that, that's not the case. It, it, you need to, and perhaps COP could, could, could help us improve that, raise the bar on, on the, the level of the technical discussion. We need to take into account proper life cycle approaches to compare solutions. So uh, there are crops that have full traceability of uh, the actual geographical origin of where, it, where the feedstocks come from, which is the case for sugarcane. I don't, know, I, don't know, I don't know if many people know that, but once you harvest the sugarcane, you don't have much time until you actually crush and process it in the facility. So this would generate a, a, a logistics nightmare, but it's actually our, our, our free pass to sustainability because I know exactly where it comes from. So I know I can I can give you the shape file of the actual farm and cross it with a, with the satellite imagery from 20 years ago. And that's how we know that, well, this is there, there is this uh, uh, scale point of view. So the, the whole 1% is very important because how can something that occupies 1% be responsible for such large amount of deforestation? And there is a time frame point of view as well. This is a centuries old. There are several uh, uh, agricultural businesses that are centuries old uh, practices. Raisin, uh, we, we have uh, currently 35, uh, we, we don't even call it mills anymore. We call it bioenergy parks because it uh, has increased so much and, and improved so much in terms of energy outputs from the same feedstock. We have bioenergy parks that were actually built a hundred years ago. So. Uh, if, if we look back, like life cycle assessments uh, point us to a 20-year time frame for assessment. If we look back 20 years ago, most of the sugarcane was already sugarcane back then. And, and the remaining part, uh, that's what Emily covered, that uh, went over mostly uh, degraded pasture land, which occupies nearly uh, 20 times more than, than sugarcane in, in Brazil in terms of territory. So what COP could... Uh, help us is raising the bar and improving the level of discussion to take into account actual life cycle perspectives on each of the crops, each of the solutions. Uh, not many people know that uh, an electric vehicle today in some countries could have, will have uh, larger life cycle emissions than a gasoline uh, regular vehicle because of the energy matrix. There's no such thing as a zero emissions vehicle if we take into account life cycle perspective. So uh, perhaps COP could uh, help us improve the discussion. Um, Plinio, 
if somebody, if if you were a COP26 and you were talking to a policymaker who says, eh, I don't know about biofuel, I've heard that it displaces food and causes deforestation, what would you say to that policymaker to reassure them specifically um, about the situation in Brazil? Thank you, Dave. Um, I would say that uh, with certification, it's not only zero deforestation, but it's also recovery of ancillary forests around riverbanks. Uh, uh, I'm going to give you a data. Between 1990 and 2016, uh, in the center-south region alone, uh, 258,000 hectares of ancillary forests were recovered around riverbanks. That is about 3.3% uh, of the current uh, area cropped with sugarcane for sugar and ethanol. And we have been mentioning here that sugarcane occupies 1% of the territory, but it's 1% for the whole sugarcane. For ethanol, is a little bit over half a percent. And with this half a percent, Brazil is substituting almost 50% of its gasoline with a very clean fuel and, and um, producing bioelectricity producing pelletized bagasse, producing also uh, second-generation ethanol with uh, trash from sugarcane, which is recovered from uh, the field, um, producing now biogas and biomethane, all because sugarcane is a very efficient way of converting solar energy into biomass and then biomass converted into usable, easy uh to store and distribute energy. Um, um, beyond the ancillary forests, um, uh, over 8,400 uh, water springs during the same period had been recovered and, um, and maintained and preserved. Uh, in the Northeast, if you go to Alagoas, 30% of the cane area in Alagoas is areas of protected land and ancillary forests around river banks. So when you fly over with a commercial plane, you know, over these areas, it's a garden. And I would say this to this policymaker, if you really want to decarbonize the world and you need to do this fast, there are few options at hand. And bioenergy and biofuels are probably the best way of doing it if you consider well-to-wheel or cradle-to-grave criteria. If you want to mock yourself considering only tank-to-wheel, it's fine, you know. You only look at tailpipe emissions and don't look at the source of the energy or how the energy is being produced, it's fine. But when you use the well-to-wheel or cradle-to-grave criteria, there's very little options that match bioenergy and biofuels. And that's why the IEA, along with IRENA, along with other 19 nations in COP21, uh, Fiji, in Bonn, issued a declaration of vision saying that for you to meet the Paris Goal agreements, you need to double the proportion of bioenergy in world energy demand and you need to triple the proportion of sustainable biofuels 
in fuels used in land, sea, and air. And I agree fully with James when we, he talks about the importance of SAF, SAF, sustainable aviation fuels. Ethanol is a great way of producing SAFs. And this is going to be very important as well because we need to fulfill the goals of Corsia for neutralization of emissions in the aviation sector, uh, as well as we need to reduce emissions from sea transport uh, using other uh, biofuels. So biofuels is an easy way using available feedstocks around the world. Let's forget uh, the limitations of some countries in that regard. The world is larger than the limitations of a few countries. The world has a lot of feedstocks uh, which are essentially solar energy being captured as biomass, which is there available to be used. And Brazil is going to be very busy itself in meeting its own goals established for Renova Bio. Renova Bio targets, decarbonization targets, call for expansion of ethanol use from the current 30 billion liters to 48 billion liters in 10 years. And this is going, to, I assure you, is going to be done on a sustainable way, all certified under international criteria. But other countries in Africa, Southeast Asia, Latin America can expand biofuel production and eventually increase world trade in biofuels. Thanks. Uh, we have a lot of great questions coming in from the audience, but before I throw a couple of those out to you guys, I want to ask a question to James, uh, and that is about the ETS. So um, we know that uh, the UK is right now setting up their own emissions trading system following Brexit. We still don't really know the details of that, uh, but we do have, of course, the EU ETS, which is now well established. Uh, how, what is the intersection between motivations in the ETS and uh, biofuels? We know that the EU has proposed for this uh, dedicated transport ETS. So how could the EU ETS, the UK ETS, other emissions trading systems around the world motivate the development of biofuel? Okay, it's a very good, a very good question. I mean, up until, as you know, up until uh, you know, um, from a historical basis, uh, transport has been excluded from the from the from the EUTS. But if we look at um, maybe analogous um, uh, regulations, so if we look at the California low carbon uh, low carbon uh, fuel standard regulation, um, which is a, a carbon mechanism. Dedicated for road transport uh, and the analogy from that, uh, the Renova Bio uh, program that uh, Emily has mentioned is, uh, is, another, is another example. I mean, the Californian system you know, has been um, very effective in um, uh, applying a carbon price uh, to biofuels and to differentiate biofuels based on their carbon uh, uh, credentials. Um, and that is a um, uh, that's the right thing to do. We feel, and that's a very, very powerful, a powerful mechanism. Uh, but I think, from my perspective, it's only it's only half the story, if you will, because I think, uh, as well as um, incentivizing biofuels on a 
carbon basis, uh, there needs to be a technology, uh, a technology driver, a tech, something that forces new technologies and enables uh, um, and accelerates the the, um, the commercialization of new technologies and brings them down the uh, and brings them down the uh, their, their cost curve. And again, if we're going back to the uh, uh, to the U.S. and uh, uh, that is a um, and the um, federal uh, renewable fuel standard, which does have that um, uh, technology forcing element in in its various um, uh, sub targets uh, uh, under the under the RFS. So the the, the U.S. Uh, renewable fuel standard working in tandem with the California low carbon fuel standard, I think does you know, provide that that mechanism that I think is, is probably the the, um, the, uh, the the preferred way forward, which is in part providing um, or incentivizing um, established technologies based on their carbon credentials, but also providing that that mechanism to accelerate. Uh, new emerging technologies and get them into the market and propel them, start to propel them down the down the down the down the cost curve, and that should be the the twin objectives, if you like, of uh, of uh, uh, biofuel uh, biofuel regulation. Okay, well, let's take a question from the audience here. We have a question from Mike from Transport and Environment. I'm going to put this question to Plinio. Uh, Mike says, as solar panels are 100 times more efficient in providing usable energy in transport, should solar panels gradually replace sugarcane to make much more efficient use of available land? Um, so Plinio, how, do you know offhand how the energy generation potential of solar panels in a piece of land compares to sugarcane used for bio, uh, bioethanol? And then would the, what do you think of this idea to gradually replace that use of the land? Um, no, we don't see that uh, possible. And uh, yes, solar panels uh, have improved uh, their efficiency uh, tremendously over time and probably will continue to do that. But um, uh, the efficiency of uh, uh, sugarcane and other biomasses, I have to mention as well, 10% uh, of ethanol in Brazil is produced from corn. Uh, sustainably produced corn uh, as second crop to soy. Um, which uses very little inputs. Uh, it's very uh, low cost, very efficient. Um, and um, these uh, biomasses, cane, corn, um, they're very efficient in converting solar energy uh, into biomass. And if you're able to convert this biomass efficiently into concentrated uh, energy, be it liquid or um, bioelectricity or biogas, that becomes very uh, 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 interesting on an energy-wise perspective. When you look at uh, solar uh, panels or even um, wind generation, you have to take into account what is the carbon which is being uh, emitted in producing and discarding these solar panels after they uh, uh, get their life cycle uh, uh, spent. Um, so um, um, 
and you have to take into account under the cradle to grave system as well all the uh, energy which is used in establishing the new distribution system to use this electricity. In many parts of the world, we don't have infrastructure to uh, uh, recharge batteries or uh, have this electricity distributed uh, in, in, uh, in the needed, uh, in the necessary way. So, yes, we believe that solar panels are going to be increasingly used. I myself am a user uh, of solar panels um, to substitute for uh, home electricity. Um, and uh, I'm a fan of it. But uh, when you look at um, the need to have energy for transport to be available for um, long-haul um, transport, um, in, in particular in large countries um, uh, with a large geographical area, um, we still see uh, a great role and uh, great potential uh, for li liquid fuels, provided they are produced in a sustain sustainable, uh, certified way, uh, like they are happening in Brazil and soon in many other parts of the world. Thanks a lot. So we have a question next from Kaya Grothheim, uh, who is a counselor for environment. Um, I'm going to put this question to Emily, but Emily, let me know if you think someone else is better for this. Uh, Kaya asks, what about pesticides used to produce biofuels in Brazil and their effect on biodiversity? So perhaps I can leave uh, the, the specifics of that uh, to Plinio, but my understanding is that we are talking about a very low use uh, of pesticides uh, in any production of sugarcane ethanol uh, or sugarcane production in Brazil. Plinio? Uh, thank you. Yeah, thank you. If you don't mind, uh, Dave, most of biological control in Brazil is using a fly. Uh, uh, and, uh, and the biggest uh, pest we have in sugarcane is a worm uh, called uh, um, uh, Broca. Uh, and, uh, and this worm uh, is fought with this fly. So it's very common in Brazil, uh, biological control. Of course, there are companies that still use uh, pesticides, chemical pesticides, but the um, amount of pesticide which is used compared with other crops uh, is very low. Um, in um, uh, per hectare basis, it's one-fourth to one-fifth of what is being used in other crops in Brazil and in other countries around the world. Uh, so the next question comes from Enrique Antunes uh, from BP. I want to put this to Andre. So Enrique asks, uh, biofuels have been out there for quite a long time now. What's stopping it? And I think by it, he means the, the, the uh, wide-scale deployment of biofuels. And what can be done to achieve global large scale in terms of supply and demand? Andre? Thanks. Um, well, I, I would say that um, uh, the usage of biofuels will be proportional to carbon pricing mechanisms that are put in place. 
worldwide speaking. I mean, what, the, the main advantage of, of a biofuel is the fact that it displaces a large amount of CO2 from the atmosphere by um, avoiding the usage of a fossil equivalent. Uh, if this CO2 spread it's not, is not properly priced, then um, it, it's like you, you have a free negative externality to, to emit from a, from a user perspective and there's no incentive for you to boost biofuel production. So I would say that uh, there are several successful cases of, of implementing carbon pricing mechanisms and, and whenever you price carbon, you're going to price the largest emitter sector and, and mostly uh, transportation is among them. So that's why you have uh, Renova Bio in Brazil, the LCFS in California, and several other good uh, uh, mechanisms. So as the, the more such practices grows, grow, uh, I would say that it is what we need to unlock a global larger scale of biofuels. And, and this will be just automatic because um, market will regulate itself. And, and if you go for the, the cheapest CO2 reduction, if, if it's a free market in which you just uh, uh, reach out for the most feasible solution, uh, you can you can rest assured that biofuels will be there because that, as we've been uh, saying throughout the conversation here, uh, this is the, you, you, you're left out with uh, not many alternatives when you want to um, abate emissions uh, quickly. Okay, so we have a next question here. I'm gonna put this question to James. Uh, James, this question is from Frank Rossillo Calle uh, from Imperial College. Uh, Frank says, biofuels cannot replace all petrol in transport. Should we give priority to niche markets like aviation, maritime, and fine chemicals? Uh, we haven't really touched on, we've been talking, I think, mostly about automotive uses. Do you think that uh, Rather, the focus should be more on these other uses of transport, which have been harder to decarbonize and would certainly be hard to electrify. Okay, yeah, thank you. Um, thank you for the question. Uh, so I'll maybe push back slightly on the description of aviation as niche, because I think in the longer term, the, the, the requirements for, uh, for SAF or sustainable aviation fuel for, for biojets uh, are going to be significant. And I've mentioned this uh, um, uh, you know, potential 50% of the aviation biofuel by uh, by uh, uh, by uh, uh, by 2050, and that's out of you know, uh, uh, total uh, jet uh, global jet consumption of some uh, six million barrels a day uh, today, maybe falling slightly, maybe to to, to five. So you can see 50% of that sort of uh, that sort of consumption pool is very far from being very far from being niche. And uh, uh, and as I said, you know, very um, you know, equivalent to uh, today's total uh, biofuels uh, uh, supply. And as I said out front, I think this think about this as a, as a as a uh, as an evolution. Uh, and and the biofuel sector, I think, needs to go through an evolution and this pivot from um, what is you know, um, some seventy percent of overall global biofuel production is bioethanol and the reason for that is that is the uh, most cost-effective technology that we have today um, but I think uh, as um, technologies evolve and as the um, uh, need for action to evolve and also the regulation 
that's uh, um, that's required to support that. And I'm thinking particularly of um, um, biojet, Pacific biojet targets to propel the the uh, uh, the development of that of that uh, of that uh, of that uh, of that market. We'll see the evolution uh, in, in biofuels, as I said, from you know what is today primarily biogasoline solutions into biodiesel, biojet, biodiesel uh, uh, solutions, uh, targeting you know, uh, you know very much the the parts of the transport sector where electrification is is going to be um, is not necessarily going to be the advantage the advantage the advantage option. And again, to reinforce my point is, uh, in order to do that, we are going to need and, uh, and evolve of the of the uh, the basis that we have that we have today. Does anyone else uh, does anyone else want to come in on this issue of using biofuels in aviation and or maritime? I'd like to say a few words about it, Dave. Um, we are not. Uh, mentioning the uh, use of CO2 from fermentation. But uh, this is a great potential because in fermentation tanks uh, producing ethanol, there's the release of uh, CO2, which is reabsorbed by uh, the uh, sugar cane. But you can capture this CO2 and actually uh, use it uh, to produce uh, um, chemicals uh, green chemicals, uh, combining ethanol and uh, biogas and CO2 uh, uh, to produce a green chemistry. Um, and this uh, allows not only to produce uh, sustainable aviation fuels, but a number of other products. So there's a huge potential in that area. And um, yes, I, I see uh, a great potential for ethanol used in aviation. Uh, and this may be a, a great line uh, of development, um, including the use of uh, uh, CO2 from fermentation tanks, which is, by the way, very clean CO2, which uh, makes it easier to be used uh, in this transformation. Thanks. So, uh, Emily, did you want to come in? Yeah, very quickly on, on the, the SAF, I think one of the, the key uh, elements here is that Farnesane, so this is the um, sustainable aviation fuel that's uh, uh, based uh, from sugarcane ethanol in particular, Farnesane has been already recognized internationally as one of the key pathways that needs to be developed. And, and obviously there needs to be a lot of investment into uh, bringing this uh, to, to a certain scalability. Um, but what we've seen now is from the EU's proposal, and this is where we need a bit more policy coherence between uh, different levels of governance, uh, especially going into COP26, is that we've seen that there is um, a sort of this um, exclusion of a number of these pathways, these feed crop pathways, uh, simply on the basis of uh, the fact that they are food or feed based rather than their sustainability criteria. So once again, it would be um, it would be important to have this coherence between what is being developed um, uh, at the level in Corsia, um, what is discussed in COP and what is discussed in Brussels. 
Thanks. Okay, so we're wrapping up toward the end of the event. So I thought it might be interesting to get some closing remarks uh, from each of you, kind of what your key takeaways from this conversation are and what you think is going to be the most interesting to watch at the COP26 in Glasgow. James, let's start with you. What are your key takeaways from today's conversation? Well, I suppose my key takeaways are, you know, as I said, for me um, personally, very much a... a, um, a conviction that bioenergy, biofuels, has a role to play going forward in the in the energy mix, and as I mentioned, you know, tackling uh, in the longer term um, parts of the transport sector that are going to be hard to decarbonise. Uh, that where electrification is not really uh, an option, and the really sort of critical. Uh, critical role that the biofuels have in that in that uh, in that space, and to some extent the challenge. Um, you know, I've already given you some idea of the potential you know, requirements for for biojets going going forward. And for me, it's clear that this is not going to be um, just one technology, one biopathway that is going to deliver this. Um, so, for example, you know, we don't see. Um, municipal solid waste, the waste and um, fishing truck gasification as being the sole solution. It will be part of the solution. There will need to be other other technologies, other feedstocks. Um, so yes, there's uh, alcohol to jet technologies, and we and we see you know very much Brazil as having a uh, a role to play in that. But we're going to have to go beyond that in terms of you know other technologies, looking at uh, other. Um, energy crops, fast-growing energy grasses, other res- residues and wastes, other conversion technologies. So this is really going to be a very significant challenge, um, and it's going to be, and is actually quite a, a compelling challenge in terms of the range of technologies that we're going to we're going to need, and indeed the, the deployment of new um, new business new businesses, new value chains, um, and that is going to take. That is going to take regulation um, to um, to enable to support, um, and I think what I would um, uh, and with the, maybe the sort of specific reference to the to the UK and uh, maybe looking at another sector, we've seen the success that the UK has had in achieving um, and in promoting offshore wind and um, moving the UK to being one of the leaders in the offshore wind sector. And that was as a result of some very foresighted uh, policy making some some five some five years ago uh, by the uh, by the government uh, five more more years ago and um, the uh, putting in place of the necessary regulation that gave the sector the confidence to invest and um, and you saw the result in terms of. Uh, um, Offshore wind coming down its cost curve from being you know, well over uh, 100 uh, pounds per megawatt hour to now being the most cost-effective form of new build power generation in the UK and indeed in other in other in other in other markets. So that gives you a very clear example of what is policy, what is possible if you get the policy and the regulation right. And I think that would be my uh, my message to COP26 is. You know, be ambitious and get the policy and regulation right, and then you will establish the new businesses and new business models that you're looking for. 
Thanks. Uh, Andre, let's get your quick uh, takeaways from today's discussion. Well, um, first of all, I, I really appreciate the opportunity to, to be here and, and I'd like to congratulate you on, on, on promoting such an important debate. Sometimes what we lack um, the most is just information, right? Um, once we get everyone's attention to the fact that whatever the solution for decarbonization is, it, it has to leave passion and personal beliefs behind and take into account and, and, and an evidence-based approach and, and, and search for the proper comp combination of low-carbon solutions. It's not like one or another is, is, is it's going to be the, the only one. There's, there, again, there's no super bullet and, and we'll only be able to choose the right path once we balance every options properly taking into account all the impacts associated with each of them. So, well, Ryzen makes itself available to discuss these alternatives and, and we are confident that, that biofuels will remain, remain um, playing a, a, a key role on decarbonization for energy sectors for a long time um, as we do today. So um, thank you very much and I, I make myself available for any further discussions. Thanks a lot, Plinio. Let's go to you next. Thank you, Dave. Um, well, looking forward, I think um, policy should not look at taxonomy or labeling of options, but should uh, look at the te technical uh, elements to define uh, which should be the targets and then not elect champions. Let the market and technology define which are going to be the best solutions. Uh, and um, I think uh, Brazil brings to COP uh, Glasgow uh, a great uh, example uh, with biofuels produced in a sustainable way, certified way. And um, I think uh, this is going to be uh, one of the options that will be on the table uh, for uh, energy in transport looking forward and um, um, uh, more and more uh, information and uh, knowledge about uh, uh, what is really happening uh, is needed. Um, and um, I, it would be great if in Glasgow, we change the additionality concept, which is preventing uh, the um, um, international adoption of the carbon bond under Renova Bio to be adopted more easily um, because it just doesn't make sense uh, that um, it, it uh, may not be considered uh, just because um, um, ethanol has been in use uh, in Brazil uh, for decades. And um, uh, you should consider what is the additional uh, 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 biofuel uh, production which is being used in an effective way um, uh, to mitigate emissions uh, elsewhere. So this is what I think it's needed uh, and I appreciate the invitation and anything that you need uh, uh, in terms of additional information we will be available as well. Thank you very much. Thanks and finally Emily what are your quick takeaways from today? 
Thank you, Dave. If you'll allow me, perhaps I'd uh, address what we didn't discuss at length today and maybe just touch upon that as a closing remark, which is finance and affordability. These are going to be two of the really top themes that we will be discussing in COP26 and that will make a difference, right? Um, the COP presidency, the UK has already said that this is going to be one of the big goals. Um, it's estimated, they estimate that we need around 100 uh, uh, billion dollars per year um, to, to finance this transition, right? So the question of uh, what are the appropriate structures to mobilize finance and investment are going to be key to some of these debates. And as Plinio just mentioned, the question of carbon bonds and the, the carbon bonds and how they can be exchanged, for instance, in, um, in, the, in the open financial market and amongst countries themselves are going to be obviously uh, some of the questions that should be debated. And again, then the affordability um, in this transition, um, which we should look at perhaps, you know, when we're sitting here in Brussels, it's easy uh, to forget that it's not all countries that will be able to benefit from the same level of subsidization um, as countries in the European Union to make these transitions. We do need to make pathways available uh, for everyone in order to, to reach, to keep the 1.5 degree uh, limit um, uh, within reach. Thank you. Thanks a lot. I thank you to all the panelists for some great insights and thank you to you at home for following along. Certainly, there's a lot to do to prepare in the next month and a half for this really mammoth climate conference. Uh, and there's going to be a lot of different issues to discuss. Transport is really going to be at the front of the agenda. Uh, so thanks for following along. Your active will be continuing to cover uh, this issue as we go forward and head toward COP26. Uh, so I wish you all a great rest of your day and I encourage you to keep the conversation going about how biofuels can contribute to global efforts to fight climate change. Take care.